Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Anna Forestine, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, July 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we're going to bring back the lightning round. We'll weigh in on the latest negotiations over the price tag for COVID-19 vaccines, Patrick Soon-Chiang's experimental cancer immunotherapy, and a celebrity scientist trying a DIY COVID vaccine. Next, Boston Globe basketball reporter Gary Washburn will call in to update us on life inside the NBA bubble in Orlando. And finally, our stat colleague Kate Sheridan joins us to discuss the financial performance of some of the largest biotech VC firms in the U.S. It's the subject of a new special report that she just authored. But first, a word from our sponsor. Imagine a world where any disease-causing gene could be silenced. Many say that's impossible, impractical, and unrealistic. But at Alnylam, we believe the RNAi therapeutics we've pioneered have limitless possibilities. We're tackling genetic, infectious, cardiometabolic, CNS, and ocular diseases where this new class of medicines has the potential to improve millions of lives. Learn more about the future of RNAi therapeutics at alnylam.com future. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash F-U-T-U-R-E. All right, guys. So we're going to start the podcast this week with a lightning round. Uh, topic number one. The cost of all of these COVID-19 vaccines. So we've spent a lot of time on this podcast and in the general discussion uh, talking about the effectiveness of the many vaccines that are under development. Uh, But now we're starting to get a glimpse of how much they might actually cost. So Damien, walk us through the news that came out uh, in the past few days. Yeah, so the initiating thing was the news that Pfizer and its partner BioNTech had agreed to a deal with the United States government whereby it would sell future doses of its vaccine, provided it works, for about $20 a dose, and it's a two-dose vaccine, so let's say $40 for a course of therapy. And that kind of established the bar for what we might expect companies to try to charge the uh, the various governments of the world, um, whether in the, in the developed nations or, or in those that are developing, for one of these vaccines. But what's been interesting since then is that, you know, once a bar is established, you would assume that in like general business negotiating that every other player would have to negotiate at a lower price in order to get access to funds. But at least according to the reporting that we've seen, that's not exactly what's taking place. Right. So uh, there was a report in the Financial Times this week that said that Moderna is negotiating with people in Europe or organizations in Europe over the price of its experimental COVID-19 vaccine. And I guess the price reported there was maybe $50 to $60 per course of treatment, right? So that's maybe $30 per dose. So that's a big price discrepancy. Uh, Is there a sense of why Moderna is moving forward uh, with trying to get a much higher price? Not from the the reporting that we've seen so far. And, And it's interesting in part because the governments and and the companies who are engaged in this negotiation are doing so having no idea what the data from ongoing phase three trials will actually show. I mean, one, the money wouldn't change hands unless the vaccines actually work. But, you know, work is a word with many definitions. And, you know, it may turn out that one vaccine is more efficacious than another or works better in certain populations, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this is kind of being done blind, really, so to speak. All right, so let's move on to topic number two. Uh, Rebecca, you and I got to write a story together about Patrick Soon-Chiang. We did. It was a pleasure to write with you, Adam. Uh, So we've been following media reports over the past few weeks uh, in which two celebrities, Harry Reid, the former Senate Majority Leader, and Alex Trebek, 
the game show host, um, have spoken out publicly and given interviews uh, about their personal experiences um, taking an experimental immunotherapy treatment uh, for their pancreatic cancer. And that treatment is being developed by Patrick Soonchong, the physician, billionaire, and LA Times owner. So one thing that stood out to me about the story is, you know, the mystery of of just what this treatment might be doing, which I think in part stems from the fact that the therapy in question is a combination of nine different cancer treatments. So what's going on there? Yeah, I think we refer to it as a cocktail, and it's probably a, a good way of describing it. Yeah, nine different drugs, uh, three of those drugs experimental. You know, you usually think about developing a drug one at a time. Patrick Soon-Chiang here is trying to develop three at the same time, all sort of immunotherapy related. And yeah, I think it's really interesting because, again, we've got these two basically anecdotal reports from, you know, celebrity type people who say that this cocktail is helping them. But, you know, the actual data that would support that, you know, we normally look at clinical trial data and suss out some sort of benefit. It's really hard to see based on the, the reports, uh, the data that have been presented or disclosed to date, uh, and it's something we bring up in the report, it's really hard to kind of see where the benefit is with this cocktail therapy. But again, it's promising, I guess. And there is a phase two study, a pretty significantly sized phase two study that is just started. And so ultimately, we'll, we'll see what those data look like. And as Adam said, um, we're still waiting. Uh, we'll probably be waiting for a year or more for results from that phase two study. Um, but already, because of the testimonials from uh, Reed and Trebek, uh, one of Soon Chong's biotech companies that's developing this treatment, NantQuest, has seen its stock price go up. That company's stock price has doubled uh, since June. I think it's a pretty remarkable example of the power of uh, celebrity testimonials about their own experiences, their own anecdotal experiences, and how that can move stock prices even before we know whether a treatment works. So one thing we've kind of left out of this story is I think a lot of the interest, or at least my personal interest, um, in it is beyond the celebrity of Harry Reid and uh, Alex Trebek, but the celebrity of Patrick Soon-Shong and the sort of singular figure that he is in the biotech world. Rebecca, I know this is sort of a big ask, but as briefly as possible, um, explain Patrick Soon-Shong to us. Yeah, Patrick is certainly controversial um, in biotech. He's someone who's had some successes. He successfully developed the cancer drug Abraxane uh, a number of years back. But he's also been criticized for making grandiose promises that don't end up matching up with reality. He's also someone who's extraordinarily well-connected. Um, he's based in LA and, and knows a lot of celebrities, as well as folks in the political world in Washington. And so I think he's someone who's viewed with a, a lot of skepticism by uh, the medical establishment and, and most doctors and researchers at top academic medical institutions. Uh, moving on to topic number three, uh, we're going to discuss a story that was published in MIT Technology Review this week. And well, maybe I'll just describe the photo that goes along with the story. Uh, it shows uh, George Church, uh, with his scraggly beard, uh, kind of bushy eyebrows, and he's sticking a nasal inhaler up his nose. Damien, what the hell's going on? Right. So, yeah, the crux of the story is that a bunch of relatively famous scientists, with George Church being obviously the most uh, recognizable, have been quietly developing a COVID-19 vaccine of their own and not in the traditional way of, you know, patenting things and, and uh, 
seeking FDA permission to run a clinical trial, but rather in the, uh, I guess, the old-fashioned way of just whipping up some chemicals and shooting them uh, up one's nose. We also got a glimpse into quarantine life of George Church. He said in an interview for the story um, that he has not left his house in some five months um, and that he's personally taken this uh, DIY vaccine. Uh, He got the, the doses dropped in his mailbox and he mixed the ingredients himself. So, Damien, when we were talking about this story earlier, uh, you had uh, quite a hot take on it. Break that one down for us. <laughs> I mean, I want to make clear that, that the story itself and Antonio Regalado's reporting uh, is really good and, and really valuable. But as I was reading the statements from George Church and, and some of the other uh, science men involved, it just struck me as, I don't know if tone deaf is the right word, but, you know, COVID-19 is a global crisis. And, you know, we talk a lot about the some of the missteps that the drug industry has made in responding to it. But it goes without saying that whether the company is Moderna or Pfizer or whomever, they're developing a vaccine with, you know, in part the goal of making lots of money, but also the goal of, you know, saving the world, um, for lack of a better term. And so when you read about all of these pretty well compensated guys working clandestinely on a vaccine just to protect themselves. And then there's the whole question of, of, you know, whether this is legal is a whole other example. But it just it just strikes me as, you know, when people scoff at the so-called ivory towers of academia and paint it as being out of touch with the rest of the world, I usually don't give a lot of credence to that. But just like an amalgamation of quotes from this story from these guys, they seem like they're in an ivory tower and completely out of touch with the world. I think another issue at play here is the issue around communication of the need for evidence and sort of sufficient level of proof uh, of these vaccines being safe and effective um, and how that's communicated to the public. I think scientists have a lot of concerns about sort of how the public will receive a vaccine. And I think this precedent of the scientists who should know better than anyone about the need for for rigorous trials, um, sort of flouting that and going in their own path really doesn't help with that messaging. There's a fascinating experiment going on in Orlando where the NBA is attempting to finish out its season despite the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and the escalating case count in Florida. For the next few months, players, staff, and members of the media will be sequestered inside the NBA's protective bubble, wearing masks and getting regular tests for COVID-19. Whether the NBA's plans actually work has major implications for professional sports in the U.S., but also presents a high-profile glimpse at what large social gatherings might look like until there's a widely available vaccine. Joining us to discuss life inside the NBA bubble is Boston Globe basketball reporter Gary Washburn. Gary, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. So for starters, can you tell us about the process of getting into the bubble? Like what happened after your flight touched down in Orlando? They ordered a car to pick us up. We couldn't like Uber to the campus. You picked up your information, which was a band with a a Mickey Mouse kind of logo on it. That's kind of your key to everything. You can actually open your room up with this band. You can open your room up with your cell phone. You have to download a bunch of apps onto your phone. They give you a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, you go to your room, they deliver some stuff to you, temperature gauge, oxygen saturation, booklets and pamphlets about process. They send you three meals a day. They deliver it to your door. 
and you uh, are just basically sequestered in your room um, for that week. And every day you take your temperature and oxygen saturation, insert into the app, and then they would um, come by your room and give you a corona test right at your door every day until your quarantine is over, which is seven days. So on top of all of these medical tests and things that you have to do, you also have a job to do there, Gary. You write about basketball for the Boston Globe. So tell us what your day-to-day you know, work life is like in this bubble. I mean, a lot of us are doing our job virtually now, so it's not anything uh, tremendously different. It's just you can't leave your room. It's a lot of just Zoom calling, cell phone calling, whatever. So it wasn't anything like I couldn't go to events or anything because there weren't really no events going on yet. There are practices and stuff, but all the reporters that were here were all in quarantine. So we weren't allowed to even go to the practices yet. And then once we were out of quarantine, things became more uh, normalcy. We're able to cover events, et cetera. So a lot of players were hesitant to finish out the season because of the risks of COVID-19. And more than a few of them decided ultimately to stay home. So what's the vibe among players in the bubble? Do they feel safe? Yeah, I think um, what's happened is is that you go through all these medical testing and protocols that you realize that you're safe. And once you start testing negative every day, you're like, okay, they're doing something right. Because you get your test, and unlike most places in the country, the test is available, your results in 12 to 15 hours. I think everyone when they got here was like, oh boy, like, how is this going to go? Am I going to have to swab where it goes like eight inches up my nose every day? Like what people were really unsure of how this was going to work. And so I think once a lot of players started to see, okay, I'm safe, like, and got used to the routine, it got more normal. So a couple months ago, when the NBA first made its plans public, there was some speculation that this experiment might turn out to be a disaster. Um, As you mentioned, you know, everything seems to be going pretty much according to plan with respect to maintaining players' health. But we've seen other leagues struggle, especially the MLB, which has really put the spotlight on Orlando as the NBA prepares to open back up. Does it seem to you like the league and the players feel a sense of pressure to get this right? Yeah, I think there's a pressure inherently to want to make it work because the country does need sport. The country does need something to do. It's been a tough time. And so I truly believe that there's players who feel like and the league feels like this is what we need to do. And let's do this. You know, we're all healthy and we're, you know, affluent uh, in terms of we make a good living and for us to back out of this is not necessarily the right thing to do, even though no one wants to be away from their family for three months. No one wants to have to go through all this, but it's necessary right now to pull this off. So Gary, as you mentioned before, uh, inside the bubble, everyone's getting daily COVID-19 tests with pretty rapid results. You know, Meanwhile, in the rest of the country, we're regularly hearing about people who have to wait a week or more for their test results. Have any players or coaches voiced concern about how that might be perceived? No, because I, I think that they realize that this is what the league paid for and this is what the league arranged. I think they're kind of people are just following what the league is doing. I think there's concern that, hey, like this isn't what everyone else is going through, like this is better. And But I also think that they understand, hey, the league wanted this to happen and the league, I'm sure, paid a heavy price 
to get this situation going. I think there might be some, you know, there's awareness that this is how it happens, but I don't know if there's guilt. So I was watching one of the scrimmages the other day, and I noticed that they have you all in the media set up right next to the court, um, which seems like a big difference from like modern arenas now where press row tends to be more toward the rafters. I'm curious, are you getting like unprecedented access to players and coaches in the bubble? Like, has this changed how you do your job as a reporter? It kind of throws us back to the old days um, where they used to sit uh, us closer to the court. No fans to just not hearing all the, the, the music and the fans and all that. You can hear a lot. The players talk a lot. They talk to each other. They talk to officials. Um, they talk to themselves. So the access is very different. It's, it's, it's what we wish we could have in a, in a normal world. Do you think that's going to change the way you report uh, for once the games start? I mean, you know, you, you are going to be hearing things that maybe you normally wouldn't hear during a game. Well, hopefully I'll be able to hear a, a lot of, you know, different things and be able to give the fans a different perspective that they might not have uh, before. Yeah, I, you hope that this enhances your reporting. And so for me, I'm very pleased with it, especially obviously what we've gone through. This is just a once in a lifetime thing. I don't think anyone here is regretting it. You basically have an opportunity to cover a league with 22 teams here, all the players, executives, et cetera, in one place. And that's not going to happen anymore. So Gary, last question for you. You're reporting for The Globe. So we have to ask, What's your prediction for how the Celtics finish this season? Wow, it's hard to really say because in this atmosphere, it's, it's different. The teams with the most motivation, who are the most self-motivated, are going to succeed because there's no fans. You have no home court advantage. Nothing that says that this is Boston or we're in Boston. They can decorate the court. They can you know, have some music that you, you used to hear before Celtic games, but it's still, we're in Orlando and it's still a neutral site. And so I think that if the Celtics are motivated and they are cohesive, they can make a run to the NBA Finals. But there's some real challenges there with the Toronto Raptors and the Milwaukee Bucks that they have to fight. So I think that they'll win two rounds, but I predict they'll probably lose in the Eastern Conference Finals. So, Gary, we look forward to reading your coverage of this very unusual NBA season. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Venture capital firms have billions at their disposal which they use to start new biotech companies or invest in existing ones. Venture capital, as we all recognize, is an essential element of the biotech universe. But while we often know a lot about the biotech startups that cash VC checks, much less is known about the financial performance of the VC firms themselves. How much money do they make for their investors? So that's the question that's at the root of a special report written by our stat colleague, Kate Sheridan. Kate spent months filing Freedom of Information Act requests and combing through public records. And with all these numbers, she was able to calculate the returns generated by more than a dozen of the top biotech VC firms in the United States. Kate joins us now to discuss her report. Hello, Kate. Welcome back to The Read Out Loud. 
Thanks so much. Kate, can you give us a quick primer on how VC firms sort of qualify their returns? Like what's considered normal and, and what's extraordinary? As far as I know, um, a normal return for an entire fund that's not the return on a particular company, but the return on all of the companies that a VC firm is invested in in one particular time frame, a normal return on a fund would be somewhere between two to three times the amount of money that they took in in the first place. This just seems to be kind of the benchmark that I've seen thrown around. An extraordinary return would be something closer to five or even higher than that, which doesn't really happen all that often, I learned uh, as part of doing this report. But two times and three times definitely did. So Kate, why is this kind of financial information so difficult to uncover? I think that's kind of an interesting question. It's not that it's necessarily difficult to uncover. It's that it's difficult to figure out where to look in the first place often. In many instances, um, venture capital firms agree to disclose this kind of information to their investors. It's often just a question of whether their investors are willing or required to disclose this information to the public. Um, In some states, state law does require public pension funds, for example, um, or university endowments to disclose this information. That's how I found it. But that's not necessarily true in every state. It's not necessarily true in the same way in every state. Um, the difficulty, I think, comes from just the the diversity of, of rules and regulations that exist around this information. So your report ranks more than a dozen really well-known biotech VC firms by their returns. We don't want to give away all the good stuff because people really should be buying this report. But you have lifted the lid on the performance of one VC fund in particular. Tell us about that. Yes. So um, I wrote a short story about the highest performing venture fund that I had information for. And that was a fund from Flagship Pioneering. This fund did remarkably well. Its investors reported um, that it had generated nine times the investment that it originally had. That number comes with some really important caveats, though. Um, I'll just run through them super quickly. That nine times number does not mean that investors actually got nine times their cash back. It means that Flagship has invested well enough that the companies that they invested in are now considered to be worth in aggregate nine times that initial investment. Whether or not they can actually return nine times the cash is still very much an open question until these investments cash out. So as you mentioned, you know, venture capitalists don't generally volunteer this type of data to the public, and you uncovered it. So I'm curious, how did VC firms react when you told them that you had uh, this information? I want to actually give them a lot of credit for their reactions across the board in general when I told firms um, that I had this information and I was planning on publishing it. Their goal was not to stop me, by and large. Their goal was to make sure that I had the context I needed to make the numbers make sense. Um, Since the report's been out, I've been getting some really good feedback, um, some really good questions as well about why I made the choices I did um, and will I be doing this again, et cetera, et cetera. So far, it's been very positive. I think it was really positive um, before the report was published and after, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. So, Kate, are there other types of financial information about VC firms that you'd like to obtain for your next report? There are so many other kinds of information that I would like to have. First and foremost, I would love to have information on more firms. Not every firm has investors that are subject to public records laws. So that's a, a really important limiting factor for this report. I would love to have information on firms that don't necessarily have these kinds of public investors. I'd also love to do a bit more analysis on how many drugs actually get produced from venture capital funds and whether or not this is actually a kind of a good way for us to be spending money, I guess. Um, That kind of analysis would be incredibly difficult and time consuming to do, though. And so I'm 
to do it, I think I would have to find a different way of collecting the information than just going through uh, SEC reports and press releases by hand that I learned quickly would not work. One other question for you, Kate. Why isn't this information just public by default? Why did you have to file public records requests and do all this digging uh, in order to reveal this information? You know, why isn't this just published by some government website? And some of it is, um, to be clear, like there's actually quite a lot of funds for which I found information just by Googling. It's really just a question of knowing what to Google. And that kind of thing took a lot of time to figure out. But even so, for investors who did require Freedom of Information Act requests, I think there's a certain amount of balance that they're trying to achieve between being transparent, but making sure that they protect their investments, protect their investment strategies as well. It's not like each pension fund really wants to give away, for example, how it's approaching venture capital. Um, So I think that's kind of perhaps this is mostly speculation because I'm not obviously an investor. I guess that's probably why some investors don't necessarily just volunteer this information. So if you're interested in purchasing a copy of Kate's Biotech VC report, and we highly recommend it, you can find the link under the reports tab on Stats homepage. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Demonado and Teresa Gaffney, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and guests we should invite on for future interviews. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And as always, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.